you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The epistle to the Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, feel free to ask someone near you who does have a copy of the Scriptures, and I'm sure they'd be happy to allow you to look on with them. Text this morning, Ephesians chapter 4. We want to read verses 22 through 32. We're breaking in on an important section of Scripture here. The Apostle Paul has just instructed the Ephesians, especially those among them who uh, formerly lived among the Gentiles in worldliness and in idolatry. He tells them that they're not to walk that way anymore. You've come to Christ and therefore you ought to live now as those who are new in Jesus Christ. And he tells them, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the way that they used to walk. And now breaking in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 4. You are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray once more together. Lord, we pray that you would come now and you would teach us from your word. Uh, We recognize your word is truth. Uh, We are like hungry beggars in need of bread to be fed. For that reason, we come now to sit before your word asking that you would open up its contents to us and that you would teach us and that you would feed us. We read a moment ago in Matthew 4 that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so we come now looking for life, looking for truth. And we pray that you would give it to us now in these moments as we consider your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul gives to the Ephesians a long list of practical exhortations, practical instructions. Uh, We're given uh, commands for how we're to use our speech, how we're to uh, use our tongues, how we're to use our hands, how we're to control our temper, how we're not to steal, how we're not to allow corrupting speech to come out of our mouths. A long list of practical exhortations. And through these instructions, the Apostle Paul wants to teach us literally uh, what our tongues ought to say, what our hands ought to do, what our hearts ought to love, what our minds even ought to think. So we have, in essence, in our text this morning, a list of moral imperatives or moral commands, moral exhortations, uh, which are to govern Christian conduct. Uh, Now, there is a brand of biblical interpretation that takes a list like this of moral imperatives. Okay, whenever we see a list like this in the Bible of uh, commands, do this, don't do that, there's a a way of interpreting such texts, which basically says that the function of such a list is merely meant to show you, the Christian, how far you fall from God's righteous standards and is designed to point you to Christ who is the only one who can fulfill God's lawful, lawful demands. And so this interpretation goes, so don't, don't view these as commands you're meant to strive to obey, but as a mechanism to drive you to Christ. This basic mode of interpretation we, we, we apply to every sort of text that gives us moral imperatives, right? And so the way that works itself out, one way it worked itself out recently uh, uh, with a very popular uh, preacher who's preaching a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which obviously contains lots of moral commands and practical instructions for how uh, we're to live as disciples of Christ. 
This popular preacher preached a series on the Sermon on the Mount and titled it, The Glorious Impossibility. What he was getting at is, here we have in the Sermon on the Mount with all these righteous prescriptions, uh, not a list of commands that we're to really strive to follow, but rather we're to see this uh, impossible standard that we can never achieve, we're to be crushed under the weight of our sins, and we're to go to Christ. And so that preacher said this, quote, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants to set us free by showing us our need for a rightness that we can never attain on our own. The Sermon on the Mount is about an impossible righteousness that is always out of our reach, end quote. So that's how that kind of mode of biblical interpretation goes when you arrive to a text that contains moral instruction, moral imperatives. Such notions are actually incorrect and misleading with respect to the Sermon on the Mount, and such notions, notions would also be misleading if they were applied with reference to the text before us this morning. And I say that because if words mean anything at all, uh, the text before us and the moral commands contained therein is plainly calling Christian people to put on the new self and to adopt a sort of godly character that accords with our new identity in Christ. And this godly character is essentially described for, our, uh, for us in verses 25 through 32, really until the end of the book of Ephesians. So, th- so this is not, brothers and sisters, look at this long list of to-dos that you can't possibly keep, and therefore look to Jesus who kept them all. No, Paul's word is, my brother, my sister, you're a Christian. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we ought to live like it. Now, this is not to negate the fact that we are a people who love to boast and ought to boast in the gracious work of Christ to save us, people like us, from our sins. We are saved, as Ephesians 2.8 tells us, wonderfully and powerfully and purely and totally by the grace, the free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from our own works. And praise God that it is so. We love to sing here, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and that will be our only plea before the throne of the living God when we appear before him at the last day. And yet we celebrate not only that which Christ has saved us from, but what he has saved us to, which is a new way of life governed by his good and perfect commands. So there's no contradiction here. We believe we are saved, made right with God totally and powerfully and purely by the grace of God. And yet God has made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so we seek to live according to the new way. And we've observed already in this series on the book of Ephesians that this is one of the things the book is trying to teach us. So the theme of the book of Ephesians, we've said, is really contained in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9-10, through 10, where God tells us that He's doing this great work of reconciliation. He's summing up all things in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is the focal point of redemptive history. Everything is pointing and directed to Him. God is summing up all things in Jesus. Another way we could put that is God is making all things new through the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the book of Ephesians unfolds, one of those things that God is doing, one of the ways in which He's accomplishing this work of redemption and reconciliation, is He's calling individual sinners to Himself purely upon His grace to the praise of His glory. He's calling individual people out of darkness into His marvelous light, and He's making them one with the Lord Jesus Christ and uniting them to Him. He's reconciling sinners in Jesus, individual men and women, former rebels against God. Now, as we just sung, once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. And then as the book unfolds, we get a a second theme that emerges, especially beginning in the latter part of Ephesians chapter 2 and then into chapter 3. And that is that not only is God making individual people new through the Lord Jesus Christ, He's also making a whole new people, the church. And He's reconciling those sinners, formerly far off from God and, and, and divided and alienated from one another. He's making them, forming them into one body, the church. And the way this comes to us in the book of Ephesians is that uh, God tells us that, that He has reconciled Jew and Gentile. And He's united them in one body. And he's, he's thrown outside the camp hostility and division and alienation. And now there's unity in Christ from those who were formerly alienated from one another. And we've observed if a Jew in the first century and a Gentile can be one in Christ and be part of the same church, anybody can. 
any two groups can be reconciled to one another through the matchless name and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then beginning in Ephesians 4, a new theme emerges. And that is that in Christ, not only are individuals being reconciled to him, not only are, are, are disparate groups being reconciled in one body, in the new uh, people, the church, but God himself in Jesus Christ is inaugurating or bringing a new moral order, a new way of life by which we as God's called out people, the church, are to live. And so this comes to us, Ephesians 4.1. Uh, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Beginning in chapter 4, Paul is concerned with the walk of God's people, the way we live our lives. And then powerfully now in Ephesians 4, the verses we've read, especially 25 through 32, we begin to get at the very nitty-gritty of what it means to walk in newness of life. It's going to tell us how we're to use our tongues week in and week out, what we're to do with our hands, what we're to love with our hearts, and what we're to think with our minds. This is the new way that God has called his new people to. So this morning, I want to open up our text. I had planned actually to go through every one of those moral imperatives in verses 25 through 32. But as I studied this passage, I came to the conclusion that there were uh, more foundational and preliminary things that need to be said before we can actually enumerate and, and look at in detail these various commands that are contained for us. And so we'll reference them But really, I want to prepare us in this sermon for what we'll consider next week, which is those individual commands themselves. So our outline that we'll follow this morning, four basic points. As we approach this text in Ephesians chapter 4, 25 and following, number one, we want to offer an important clarification. An important clarification. Number two, a helpful distinction. Helpful distinction. Number three, a crucial principle. And number four, some concluding encouragements. Uh, That is a remarkably unimaginative, uh, uh, cerebral outline. But hopefully it will clarify rather than confuse this morning. An important clarification, a helpful distinction, a crucial principle, and then some concluding encouragements for us this morning. First of all, as we approach this text, I'd like to make an important clarification. So in this text, Ephesians chapter 4, we have these prescriptions that are given to God's people. This is the way you ought to live. These are commands you ought to follow. And it's crucially important that we understand, this is the point of clarification, that this passage is directed to Christian people and not to unbelievers. Paul is talking to Christians and not to unbelievers. And more specifically... This passage is directed to Christians who have just received instruction on God's gracious salvation that brings sinners from death to life through the unilateral work of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this point, if you've been with us in in this study, or if you're familiar at all with the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, there is no question what is the foundation of salvation before God. It is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the Ephesians were listening at all up to this point, they would know my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I'm saved purely and totally by grace alone. So this passage is directed to those who are Christians, those who have been firmly grounded in their union with Christ. And so the message is this to these Christians. Christian, you've been made new. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. You have been given new desires. You've been given a new nature in Christ. You've been given a will that can resist sin. You have been given the Holy Spirit, as we prayed actually in the latter part of Ephesians 3 a moment ago, who works mightily within you. The rules of engagement, Christian, have completely changed. You're a new creature. You now have a different relationship to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin, or to use the language of Ephesians, you are no longer dead in your Sin. You've been made alive and therefore you are not powerless to fight against your sin. And don't ever act like it. Paul is saying you can become holier. Brothers and sisters, we can change. We can become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We who have been redeemed by His grace can grow in that grace. And could put to death our sin. And mature more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Rocky Balboa once said after a great victory, if I can change and you can change, anybody can change. But let's be clear. 
This is the point of clarification. It's not do this to secure your salvation. It's writing to Christian people who have already been saved. The chronology matters. The development of the argument of Ephesians matters. Saved by grace and then called to practice holiness. You cannot conform to a certain code of conduct in order to achieve status before God. Fundamental truth of the Bible. However, as those who have been given status by God, we can conduct ourselves according to His righteous commands. As those who have been made new, we can live according to the new way of life. Those of you who were here uh, when we considered that text in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10, through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith and That not of yourselves, it is the work of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Remember what we said about prepositions? Not of works. Word of. Not saved of works or by works. We are saved for works. God's design for us is that we would walk in good works. But those works are not the basis or foundation of merit and favor before God. That has been accomplished by Christ himself. But he's not just called us out of sin or away from sin. He's called us to holiness. He's adopted us, saved us for works that we should walk in them. So Christian, we don't obey to secure salvation. We obey now because we've been made new, because we've been saved. But to my unbelieving friend here This morning, you have to understand this clarification as well. The chronology matters for you as well. As you look at these moral standards and what you're supposed to do with your speech and with your hands and with your heart and your mind, you are utterly powerless to live up to the righteous standard that God is calling us to in this text. And so, as I encourage us to obey the commands of God this morning, don't hear me saying as an unbeliever, you can do this to secure God's favor, because you can't. And those of us who are here, who stand in the grace of Christ, we do not seek to live in holiness to earn God's favor. We already have been confounded and crushed under the weight of our sins. We only seek to do so now as those who have been made new in Christ. To try to earn God's love by obeying His commandments, my unbelieving friend, will be an utterly futile enterprise for you. You'll feel like you're jogging in place, like a hamster on the wheel. It's not a matter of building up enough good for God to wink at you. It's not about earning brownie points with Him. There are no brownie points with God. It's not like, man, if I can just follow these things, maybe, maybe I'll have a chance. Maybe I can be right with God. If my good outweighs my bad, if I can score enough points with God, maybe he'll give me a wink. No, my friend, don't be a fool. What you need fundamentally is to be changed. You need to be born again. You need to undergo the profound spiritual renovation that takes place when you put your faith and trust And Jesus Christ, and it does take place, and it has taken place for numbers of us in this room. Apart from that change, apart from the new birth, apart from being made new through the work of Jesus Christ, these virtues that Christ calls his followers to will confound you. So my message to you this morning is not clean yourself up and become a better person. My word to you this morning is come to Jesus, and he will make you new. It's a fundamental logic and principle here we can see. You cannot be anything other than what you are. can't be anything other than what you are. So Lady Gaga some years ago had a song called Born This Way. Yeah, I know who Lady Gaga is, okay? Uh, Lady Gaga had a song called Born This Way. And if you've never heard the song, you could probably guess what a song called Born This Way by Lady Gaga would be about, okay? Uh, uh, It's this idea that, you know, I've been born this way with with, with my sexual appetites and my my desires, and and so I just live that out. I'm born this way. There's nothing wrong with the way I am. That's just how I, I live my life out. If you see my behavior and you disapprove of it, hey, I was born this way. Could only be what I am. She's actually right. But the message we have to share with someone like Lady Gaga, and I hope someone shares it with her, is that you can be born anew. You can be born again. You can be changed. And then you can become what you are. That new creature in Christ Jesus, you'll find welling up in your soul new desires and new passions and new motives that you couldn't possibly imagine. And you will be motivated and stirred by the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ.
2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And to my Christian brother or sister, the same thing is true for you. You cannot and ought not to be anything other than what you are. You are in Christ. You've been made new. And therefore, my brother and my sister, we ought to live like it. We ought to live as those who have been made new. We should put off the old self and put on the new self because God has changed us and made us His through uniting us to Christ. So my Christian brother or sisters, I call you to the new way of life this morning. Don't hear legalism. Don't hear working in your own strength. Don't hear earning God's favor. Hear this, that I am a child of God. I have been united to Christ. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. And from that standpoint, that position, that posture, I am going to live out my union with Christ. I am going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which I have been called. So that's the point of clarification. These verses are written to Christian people who have been firmly grounded in their identity in Christ. Otherwise, these verses are unintelligible to us. If you're viewing these verses as a self-help guide or a way to score points with God, you will ultimately be confounded. And you will become disillusioned, disheartened, and disappointed. So that's the point of clarification. Now secondly, uh, see with me, observe with me a helpful distinction. A helpful distinction. The Bible speaks of our holiness, that is Christian holiness, before the Lord... In two distinct ways. So this is the distinction. There's a biblical distinction I want to make here with respect to our holiness before the Lord. And theologians and pastors sometimes refer to it this way. The distinction is this. We have on the one hand positional holiness. And on the other hand progressive holiness. That's the distinction. You won't find that language in scripture. But that's kind of the way we often describe it. Positional holiness and progressive holiness. Well what is meant by those terms? What is positional holiness? Positional holiness is our objective, positional standing with God through Christ. Positional holiness is our objective, positional standing with God through Christ. We have been consecrated, called, and set apart by God. We are presently, positionally holy before God through the righteousness of Christ. Ephesians tells us we are positioned with Christ, raised with Him, made alive with Him, and seated in heavenly realms with Him. Our place with God in Christ is secure. And brothers and sisters, it can never alter. We are God's children, His chosen ones, and His people. You understand what I'm saying? What is our position before God? We are now in the present, right with God, by the unilateral work of Christ, reckoned positionally holy before Him. That's our positional holiness. We're right. God looks upon us. He sees us through the Lord Jesus Christ, united to Him. And we are right with God now in the present scene as holy and blameless, positionally so. And so positional holiness doesn't vary by degrees. You can't become more positionally holy or less so. You either are or you are not. Are you right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ or are you not? That's the issue with positional holiness. It does not vary. Either you're in Christ or you're outside of Christ. That's positional holiness. What is progressive holiness? This is what we most often talk of when we refer to holiness. Progressive holiness is this. It is that subjective, experiential, progressive growth in holiness of life and conduct. Progressive holiness is that subjective, experiential, progressive growth in holiness of life and conduct. And that type of holiness can vary by degrees. We sometimes refer to this as growing in grace or becoming more like Christ or growing in obedience to God's commands, putting to death our sin, pursuing holy and righteous conduct before God. This is the type of holiness we most often speak of. Now, obviously, progressive holiness, we can, we can grow in, increase or diminish in to varying degrees. We can become more holy progressively. We can look more like Jesus. We can get better and better at putting to death our sins and putting on the virtues of our text. Well, our text this morning is talking about progressive holiness. Growing in holiness before God. And again, it's very similar to that point of clarification. Can't become any more positionally holy. Can't become any more God's child 
by obeying God's commands. And yet God calls us to this progressive holiness of life, this experiential holiness of Christ. So we have both positional holiness and progressive holiness taught to us in the scriptures. Let me reference just a few texts so you can see how this works. That contain both positional holiness and progressive holiness in the same text. Romans 6, really verses 1 through 14. Uh, In Romans 6, uh, Paul is instructing the Roman Christians uh, that they are dead to sin and alive to God. That is positionally, objectively true. You are a Christian, dead to sin, alive to God. That's just true of you right now. You're dead to your sin, you're alive to God. And so Paul says this, verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Positional holiness. Objectively, right now in the present, you, Christian, are dead to sin and alive to God. And then Paul goes on to talk about our progressive holiness. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So you're dead to sin, positionally, But progressively, you can live in a way that doesn't accord with your positional status before God. He said, don't live like those who are dead in sin sin because you've died to your sin. So you can't live in sin anymore. So become who you are. Become who God has made you by his grace. Positional holiness, progressive holiness. We have this again and again in the book of Ephesians. I said it a moment ago, chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, uh, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk progressive holiness, the way you live out your life, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let that objective calling, that calling from God who called us before the foundations of the world and made us right with God through his son and adopted us as his own children and made us accepted in the beloved. That was objectively accomplished. Now he says progressively now walk in a manner worthy of who God has made you to be, who God has called you to be by his spirit. I love the way this comes to us in Ephesians 5 and verse 8, which we'll consider in a few weeks. For at one time, Paul says, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. Can't be anything else. You are, that's objectively true. That's our positional status. You are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk progressively as children of light. You are light, now walk as children of light. So our text this morning, brothers and sisters, as I've said, is talking mainly about progressive sanctification. Progressive holiness. This is holiness we can possess to varying degrees. And Paul is going to tell us this is what holiness looks like. It's these virtues. It's these attributes. These character traits. This is what Christ's likeness looks like. It looks like. Therefore, pursue it. Grow in it. But never forget that we do these things out of The standing of our positional identity in Christ. We are His now, objectively. We have been saved by grace, called by God, made positionally holy in Christ, and now we should live like it. The command is, in essence, become what you are. Become what you are. Live and walk and grow and mature in a manner worthy of who you are in Christ, the calling to which we've been called. That's the distinction. Positional holiness, progressive holiness, who we are objectively before God through Christ, and who he has called us to be as those who continually grow progressively in holiness and Christ-likeness. And our text is talking primarily about the latter. So that's the uh, point of distinction. And now thirdly, a crucial principle. This is the point I wanted to arrive at this morning. A crucial principle. Here's the point. The principle. Growth in holiness does not occur apart from effort. Growth in holiness does not occur apart from effort. Spirit-empowered Gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. A fundamental assumption undergirding this passage of Scripture is that Christians are meant to be active, proactive, in the pursuit of holiness. All of the language is active language, dynamic language. It says, 
put off these things. Put on these things. Do not do these things and do these other things. Paul is calling each one of us as Christians to exercise effort in the pursuit of holiness. Growth in holiness does not occur apart from effort. Now, you've heard me say before that in the Christian life, especially when someone comes to believe on Christ, embraces him in repentance and faith, and becomes a Christian and is introduced as a new disciple, baptized into the church, it wouldn't be a bad thing to have something like freshman orientation for new Christians. We use that analogy a couple times in the book of Ephesians, okay? You all, if you've been to college, you know anything about college, they have what's called freshman orientation. And what do you learn at freshman orientation? Uh, Some of you high school students really need to listen in at this point, okay? You learn really crucial information that you must know if you're going to succeed in your years at college. Most basic stuff, okay? So they're going to tell you at freshman orientation, okay, this is where uh, you're going to room. Uh, This is where you eat, This is the registrar's office. This is how you register for classes. This is where your classes are held. You've got to listen in on that information. It's crucial information or else you will not be successful in your days at college. Well, we don't do this really well in the church today, but we ought to have something like that in the church. Freshman orientation for new Christians where you're you're given fundamental information uh, to carry with you throughout all your days as a follower of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've said in the past, if we had something like that here, at freshman orientation for new Christians, young Christians, uh, one of the things we might say to you is, you must always remember, you are saved purely and totally by the grace of God apart from your works. Always hang on to that. That's crucial information. Or you will struggle and strive throughout your entire Christian walk. Uh, I think another time we used the same analogy was with respect to the church, with respect to community. Community in the Christian life is not optional, we've said. And that that should form part of the teaching at new Christian freshman orientation. Well, this principle I'm talking about now is something that also ought to be taught at freshman orientation for Christians. Listen to me, you young Christians, you new Christians here, you need to know this. No one drifts into holiness. You never, you will never, just drift into holiness. If you just sit there and wait and are inactive, your heart will drift away from holiness, away from Christ. You do not drift into holiness. Growth in holiness does not occur apart from effort, from activity. The analogy I have in my mind is, um, you know when you're a kid, uh, uh, you can't think of anything greater than a holiday at the beach, right? Because you have a vacation, family vacation, you go for six days or whatever uh, to the beach. It's kind of like, and this will appeal to just a few people here, the ontological argument for God. The beach to a child is like that vacation of which none greater can be conceived. Okay? Uh, and, and so you just think, this is, this is paradise. I'm going to the beach for six days. And you do what everyone does. When you go to the beach, you see the beach, you see the sand, and of course you run through the sand and burn your feet because you're just so excited as a little kid. And, and the family, you know, normally has like an umbrella, you know, those big umbrellas that you sit under or mom and dad sit under and they got the cooler there with the LaCroix or the Fresca or the Capri Sun or what, what have you. And man, you take that umbrella and you plant it in the sand like your Braveheart. This is, this is my turf, my territory. And we always position ourselves, right, from other people, like equidistant. We, we stake our property. Such that if I want to play my really crummy music and, and they want to play theirs, they won't interfere together. We always listen to music at the beach that we would never listen to at home. Like really crummy music like the Eagles or something. And we drink our fresca there on the beach, right? And then, and then the kids do. What do they do? They run out into the water. And uh, they can play out there for six, seven hours. They're just treading water and sitting out there in the water. And I never understood this as a kid. You'd be out there for a couple hours, playing with your siblings or your friends, and you're, out, you're just treading water, just you know, doing your thing. And you think, man, I'm thirsty. I need to go out there and get a Capri Sun. Okay? And you look up. You're in the water. You look up at the shore. And you don't recognize anybody. You don't see your umbrella. You don't see those people who you deliberately positioned yourself equidistant away from. And you're like, where's my spot? What happened? And what do you do? You look way down there quarter mile away, and then you can, you can see the umbrella. You can see mom or dad waving at you to come on back. Well, well, what happened? I never understood this when I was like seven, eight, nine years old. 
Why, how did I get here, right? Well, what happened? But the current, okay, the tide pulled you away from where you were. If you're not paying attention and you're just treading water, you're going to be pulled away from that umbrella and that delicious Capri Sun, right? It's like that in the Christian life. You just allow yourself to be inactive. You don't exert effort. The tide of your sinful heart, the current of your sinful heart, will always pull you away from Christ. Will always pull you away from holiness. No one drifts into holiness. If you drift on the waters of this world, you will always drift away from Christ-likeness. And so the principle stands that growth in the Christian life, growth in holiness does not occur apart from effort. Spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. Brothers and sisters, this should not make us feel uncomfortable. A lot of Christians, they hear that word effort, and they get really weird. Mm -hmm. Are we justified by faith alone apart from works? And they, and they freak out. Well, listen, there's no need to allow the word effort to become like a four-letter word in your Christian vocabulary. And we, it, it, it comes to us over and over again in the Scriptures. Repeatedly, we're told to exercise effort in the fight for holiness. And so you have a text like Romans 8, verse 13. What are we told to do there? To put to death the deeds of the body. It is extinguish. Take action, exert effort to put to death the deeds of the body. Colossians 3.5 says a similar thing. tells us to put to death what is earthly in you. 1 Timothy 6.12, we're told to fight the good fight of faith and to take hold of eternal life. Luke 13 verse 24 tells us to strive to enter through the narrow gate. 1 Corinthians 9.24-27 talks about how we're called to run a race to exercise self-control, literally to beat our bodies or to discipline our bodies to keep them under control. Active language. Philippians 3, 12 through 14, Paul tells us that he is pressing on. He's striving. He's straining forward to lay hold of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, 2 Peter 1, 5 tells us to make every effort, effort, to add to our faith virtue, or good works. Brothers and sisters, the Bible commends effort, striving, working, warfare against sin, not apart from the power of the Spirit or the grace of Christ that work within us, but it commends strenuous work nonetheless in order to grow in holiness. So here are just three texts that illustrate how these two things go together. We're working, we're striving, we're straining, and God is working within us at the same time. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. Paul says this. But God, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Now listen to Paul. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of Christ that is with me. Oh, he worked He strived, he labored, he strained, putting to death his sin, putting on the new self. I worked harder than any of them. And then he realizes upon further review, even that work wasn't my effort, but it was the grace of Christ at work within me. Even my effort was Christ's work within me. Colossians 1, verses 28 through 29, second verse that captures this idea. Colossians 1 verse 28, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he says this, verse 29, for this I toil. Don't use the word toil lightly, right? Use the word toil when you've been out in the yard for 10 hours. I I was toiling out there. For this I toil, struggling. I toil, struggling, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I toil, I struggle, I strive. And the energy is supplied from God. So even my striving, my effort, is the work of Christ within me. And then a final text, Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work. Out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What do we we learn from these texts? I want you to notice, brothers and sisters, Paul isn't waiting to be zapped with some divine energy. He's not just sitting around for, for, for grace to just happen, for him to just grow by osmosis. No, Paul exerts himself. He engages in godly effort. He says, I worked my tail off in service for Christ. And then he turns around one day and he says, you know what, that was hard work. But I can see now that even that work was ultimately Christ's power at work within me. See what I'm saying? You're working, brothers and sisters, in the fight for holiness. You're striving. Your effort is Christ's work within you. Your effort, your sweat, that is Christ's power and energy and grace that he gives to you. Where do you think that stuff comes from? What is there innate in yourself that would make you resist sin and pursue holiness? There's nothing innate in you. Where does that come from? It's only the grace of Christ that makes you want to stop lying and start using your tongue to tell the truth. It's only the power of the Spirit that makes you want to say no to sexual sin and pursue purity before the Lord. It's only Christ working within you that makes you want to get control of your temper. Here's an illustration of how this works. Christian moms, Christian dads, you struggle with flying off the handle with your kids. Discouraging them, anger towards your kids, right? And then you come before a text like this. Ephesians chapter 4, which says you were to put off the old self, put on the new man. And you read that we're not to let any corrupting speech come out of our mouth, but only that which uh, works toward edification that builds up, that gives grace to those who hear. And you read that we're not to be filled with bitterness and wrath and anger. We're to put off ungodly anger. And we're to pursue peace with our neighbors. And you conclude, I'm, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to strive. I'm going to strain. I'm going to exert godly effort and trust that God will help me in this. And then your kid does something so stupid. Just, just so, so, such a bonehead thing. And man, you feel that energy. You've got to let him have it. You check yourself. You feel those words on the tip of your tongue. And you remember, I use my tongue for good. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. I have to use my tongue to edify and to bless. I'm not going to shout in anger at my kids. And you stop. Maybe you so felt that energy toward lashing out in anger. Maybe a little drop of sweat comes down. But you catch yourself. Go to the other room. Settle down. And then you thank God. You say, where did that come from? I, I stopped. I didn't mouth off at my kids, discourage them and hurt them. How did that happen? It's the grace of Christ at work. You, you exercised effort. You exercised discipline. You may have sweat a little bit, but you realize in that moment of silence, God is working in me. The Spirit worked, and I caught my tongue by God's grace. I can, I can have success over this. I can win this. I can have victory over my sin and the strength of Christ and the grace which He supplies. Another example, you are tempted to click on something inappropriate on the internet. It's a window, a link, whatever, and you just you feel that impulse, man. You could feel your, your arm even moving toward the keyboard or the mouse or whatever. So I, how can I, who am dead to sin, live any longer in this? Pull your arm away. You go in the other room. You catch yourself. You say, I felt that impulse. I had to control myself. I had to exercise effort and pull myself away from that sin. And then you catch your breath and you say, Christ is done. I know what the old self would have done. The old self would have indulged in all sorts of sin. But God's making me new and you feel his grace working within you. The spirit empowering you to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Don't you want to feel what that's like? Doesn't that make you want to fight your sin? To experience the grace of Christ at work within you, the power of God to help you in slaying your sin and putting on Christ's likeness and righteousness. I know I want to feel that. I was converted when I was 10 years old. My besetting sin, my prevailing sin, at least I think at the time, maybe someone who knew me would have a different opinion. I was, I was, I was compulsively lazy. I was what the Bible would call a sluggard. It's the way this would work itself out. I'd hear 
mom's van coming home with groceries, and I'd go to the bathroom, shut myself in, just you know, twiddle my thumbs, and then walk out, you know, turn the faucet on, make it sound like I washed my hands, and I'd walk out. Oh, are all the groceries put away? Oh, I, I only wish that I might have been here to help you, right? No joke. And you parents feel free to use this. My mother once punished me. Uh, she, she made me go outside to the sidewalk, said, get on your hands and your knees, and I want you to look at an ant for 15 minutes. <laughs> Some of you don't understand what I'm talking about. I'll, I'll remind you in the Proverbs, there's a proverb that talks about going to the ant, you sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise, because the ant's this amazing picture of productivity and work. And literally, busy street, tons of houses, I'm sitting there on all fours looking at this ant, and I got my watch there with 15 minutes time. That was so lazy. And I can remember as a, as a young Christian boy growing into manhood and seeking to mortify that. And I can remember looking back one week on a long week of work and toil in an effort to grow in, in diligence, knowing that that's pleasing to God, working with my own hands. And I can remember saying, now how did that happen? Where did that come from? This boy who was allergic to work now wants to do it. I did work. I did strive. I was out in the yard in the South Florida sun, sweating and toiling. But all of a sudden, as a new creature in Christ Jesus, with new motives, a new desire to please Christ, I experienced His grace working within me. And I sweat, I toiled, I strove. But I looked back and I said, that was the grace of God. The grace of Christ helping me to put off the old man, to put on the new man. This is the crucial principle. Growth in holiness does not occur apart from effort. And now into these final moments some concluding encouragements. My brother and my sister, let me encourage you, those of you who are in Christ, first of all, to trust. Trust in Christ and know that your identity is safely in Him. Please, no one respond to this message by thinking you have to work to earn God's favor. I've taken pains to clarify that that is not at all the case. You are made new in Christ and are perfectly accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. So trust in that work. It's not about me and what I do, the labors of my hands. It's about Christ and what He's accomplished for me. Say with that old song, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress helpless. Look to thee for grace. Foul, that's dirty. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or, my, or I die. That's my encouragement to you, Christian. The first encouragement to trust. And now a second encouragement. Having trusted, try. Having trusted, try. And you've got to get the order right. You trust and then try. Exert. Spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort at growing in holiness. You may have these areas of sin in your life and you think, I'm getting nowhere. Just stalled out in sanctification. I think tons of people are in this place, right? You just see your sin, you're discouraged, you're not seeing progress. You're just stalled out, you don't know what to do. And so many Christians give these vague platitudes. We're like, we're like those useless NFL football coaches, right, at Super Bowl Sunday, so I'll use this analogy. You, you always hear coaches say the most useless things in those pregame interviews. We just got to take it one game at a time, really got to play both sides of the ball like, like no duh, right? What coaches ever said, we really got to take it five games at a time, and really, if we just focus on one side of the ball, the other side, you know, we don't really worry about that, right? We could be like that as Christians. A sister who wants to control her tongue, and she says to her, I'm struggling with this, and what do we say? Just give it over to God, sister. You know? Do your best, let God do the rest. You know? Soak it in the Spirit, wash it in the Word, bathe it in prayer. I mean, they're very clean people. Right? A lot of washing going on. Just these vague... Plat- well, I think lots of Christians are in that position where they don't really know how to grow in holiness. Well, growth in holiness will not occur without this sort of spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort in the power of Christ. May God help us to do some of the putting off and some of the putting on that we need to do. Eventually, brothers and sisters, we have to get to the nitty-gritty of putting off some old things. And putting on the new man. If anyone's in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are new. And so very practically, I implore you, brother or sister, go to Christ today and ask him. Pray this prayer this afternoon. I'll even give you the words. 
Lord Jesus, what do I need to put off? And what do I need to put on? I promise you he'll tell you. Has there been a time I've asked Christ to show me my sin when he hasn't answered that prayer? What do I need to put off? What do I need to put on? Finally, to those here outside of Christ, my word to you is simple. You can try all you want, but you cannot make yourself right with God. You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of all your sins. You must come to Jesus and say, I've tried all I can. I've tried everything. I've tried to improve myself. I've tried to ignore you completely. And I can no longer. Now I come to you. I put my faith and trust in you. And I am depending on you to be a savior to me. And you will find that the Lord Jesus will be a savior to you. And he will make all things new. You'll find desires, motives, and effort creeping up inside of you that you never thought possible. That you hitherto have never known. Christ working within you, making you a new creature. And you will find yourself delighting in God and singing His praises and seeking to live according to His ways and His commandments. You will experience the new nature in Christ Jesus. My unbelieving friend, the Scriptures are true. If anyone is in Christ... Bible subscription for those who come to Him in repentance and faith. If you're in Christ, if you come to Jesus, the old will pass away. Behold, all things will become new. You will become new. You can become new, but that sort of change only happens through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ who is a Savior for sinners. Let's pray together. Our Father, what can we bring to you? What could we possibly do to satisfy your law's demands? Many of us know what it's like to be crushed under the righteous requirements of your law. And yet many of us know what it's like to be made new. And to want to please Christ, to want to live a life for Him as we sung moments ago, lover of my soul, I want to live for you. We can testify those desires weren't there back when we lived in sin and darkness. And yet when your spirit gave us life, brought us to Jesus Christ, we experienced the grace and power of Christ at work within us to overcome our sin and pursue holiness before the Lord. Help us in this. May it be our testimony years from now that we are more holy now than we were back in 2018. It may be the testimony of some others in this room. That I have a new nature now in Christ, different from the old self I had back in February of 2018. That's when Christ made me new and made me alive and saved me by his grace. May it be so for each one of us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.